You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome to week two of Harborside Church. Feels good. Thank you, everyone who made um, Launch Sunday possible last week. It was very exciting and it was a great day. And this is equally, if not more exciting, to be here gathered together as God's people. Um, can't wait to dive into God's Word this morning and see what He has for us. Many of you know um, I was in a Christian band for many years, and uh, we, I'm about to tell you another band story. It's a band story from the archives. I don't know how many we're up to at the moment. It's probably a bunch. Uh, so you know what? You just, you got to work with what you got, okay? So that's what I've got. Years of band stories, so you're going to get a few. Um, so when we got to the USA, so we realized pretty quickly that we didn't know anybody and we had no fans. We had about four fans and they were our wives. There was four blokes and we're all married. We had four fans and they were our wives. That was about it. We'd been touring in Australia for about six years, making fans, working hard. But as soon as we got to America, we worked out pretty quickly. We had to get some fans and quick. Now, one of the best and the quickest ways to do that is to go on tour with other bands, open up for bigger bands. And uh, so we did that. You try and make their fans your fans, all right? So we did that quite a lot. We had the great fortune of opening up for a really large band over there. I won't tell you the whole story. That's probably a sermon illustration for another week, so look forward to that. (laughs) But we had the great privilege of opening up for a really big band, and uh, it was a coveted spot. So we, we got this slot, and we were really excited about it, but it came at a bit of a cost. You see... Some people thought, oh, you haven't paid your dues to get that spot. You've got to earn your way here. And so the road crew of the headliner band, they, man, they thought that, and they made our lives pretty tough. They tried to put us in our place. You know, they thought, who are these Aussie upstarts taking this, you know, uh, coveted spot? And so they tried to bring us down. I, wa- I can't tell you how many times we heard the words, you've got to pay your dues. You've got to pay your dues. We heard that so often. I was, got sick of hearing that. So anyway, so they, they kind of made it their thing to bring us down a bit. So they would play a lot of practical jokes on us. They would tease us. One of their favorites was, you, you go out when you're about to play and the stage is quite dark. And what they used to do is they put flour on the drums. And so as soon as the drummer would play the first hit, it would puff up, puff up in smoke or talcum powder. And I'd look around and he was stumbling. I'd look back and the drummer was shrouded in flour. And Oh, man, they loved that one. Another one was they'd put vinegar in our stage waters. And so you'd go, oh, it's so good to be here, Cincinnati. You know, it was... Thanks, guys. So anyway, so they, they made it their their job to try to bring us down a bit. Anyway, but we, we opened up for lots of different bands, and so we, we tried to figure out what makes a really good warm-up band. So I remember uh, actually sitting down with the lead singer of one of the biggest bands, and I said, what makes a good warm-up band? What are you wanting? He said two things. Warm up the crowd, you know, prepare them for a great night, warm up the crowd, and he actually said this thing, make us look good. <laughs> All right? So warm up the crowd, make us look good. So I thought, okay, we want the crowd make us look good. So we, we try to apply, apply those principles. And so uh, we'd be playing and we'd be like, hey, thanks so much. Like Third Day was a big band we opened up for. Like, hey, thanks so much for Third Day having us here. Hey, who's looking forward to th- seeing Third Day? Yay. Okay, we're trying to make them look good, right? One of our favorite things to do was, okay, 
they're backstage in their dressing rooms right now, and we just want to let them know that Cincinnati, Ohio is the best town in the world, and so let's have the biggest cheer we possibly can so they can hear you, you know, blah, blah, blah. We tried to ham it up for them, you know, warm them up and make them look good. Now, today, we're going to meet a real character who is really, for all intents and purposes, the warm-up act for Jesus. What a headliner. The war- he is really the warm-up act for Jesus. His job is to prepare the way for Jesus and make him look good. Now, in today's passage as well, we're also going to see Jesus prepare for his own ministry. So we're going to meet a character who's going to warm up for Jesus. He's going to prepare the way and make him look good. And we're all going to also going to see Jesus prepare for his own ministry. If you were with us last week, we saw Jesus speak his first words. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Before he said those words, he did something. He prepared for his ministry. We're going to dive into that this morning. We're going to see the significance for that is profound, looking at who Jesus is and our response to him. So that's kind of where we're going this morning, which is exciting. Now, a word about our new series. We, this week, we begin our new series called Discover Jesus. There, there it is. It's working, Maxie. That's excellent. Now, this is exciting. This is our new series, but actually, it's kind of our first series as a church. Are you excited? I can feel the excitement in the room, kind of. But uh, thanks. Yeah, migsy has got a fist pump. That's good. Okay, over the coming weeks, we're going to be taking the time to discover who Jesus is by looking at God's Word, not popular opinion, not Google searches, not maybe what our friends might think or what we might have heard, but we're going to look at God's Word. We're going to discover Jesus together by opening up God's Word. Now, about five or six weeks ago, Pip and I had the absolute joy, my wife and I, of having a couple of nights away without the kids. We've got three young kids, seven, five, and three. If you haven't met them, you've probably heard them as they came in. Everyone can always tell when the Hanburys are coming. And uh, we had the joy of going away for a couple of nights without the kids. We try and do it every year to stay sane. Don't tell them that. And uh, we thought, oh, should we go to the Blue Mountains, maybe the South Coast, maybe the North Coast? We saw this deal online, and it was for a hotel on the outskirts of the city. We thought, yeah, great, let's book that. Now, Pip and I, we spent some time overseas, but we're born and bred city people. We love this city. And so we kind of thought, oh, yeah, we know where that hotel is. We know that area. We got there, and we got outside the hotel, and we pretty quickly figured out, I don't think we've ever been here before. And so we spent the next two days exploring cafes and restaurants, barbershops, antique shops. I did spend quite a lot of time standing outside antique shops, trying to love my wife. And, uh, but we, we just spent the next two days exploring this new area of the city. Now, we thought we knew Sydney, but we spent two days exploring a great new area that we hadn't really been to before. Now, why do I say this? I guarantee you, Every single one of us will have our knowledge, love, and faith in Jesus enriched by this series. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for decades or if you've been a Christian for not very long at all or you are just seeking, you're trying to figure out, well, what is this Christian thing all about? I guarantee us, if we're willing to step out, if we're willing to discover, if we're willing to explore who Jesus is, our knowledge, love, and faith in him is going to deepen over the coming weeks. That's a guarantee. Money back? No, I'm kidding. There's no money involved, but that's a guarantee. All right, a bit of a longer intro this week. A word on the book of the Bible 
that we're diving into together. We're looking at the book of Mark in the New Testament. This is one of four biographies of Jesus' life. Many of us would know this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's probably the first written. It's very fast-paced. It's the shortest. Some of you are thinking, does that mean shorter sermons? It does not. Um, who wrote it? A guy called John Mark, who was the companion of the apostles Paul and Peter. He, and this is often thought about at the, the book of Mark, most likely the apostle Peter had the most to do with this particular book of the New Testament. It was written about 50, 55 AD, not very long after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, Mark's got a major theme. What is it? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What's our response to him? That's really Mark in a nutshell. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what should our response be to him? What does it mean to follow him? Now, Mark's also got a clear purpose. What is it? Well, we're going to discover it together. We're now going to dive into our teaching text from this morning, which is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's have a look at it together. We ready? We're diving in. I can feel the excitement. You with me? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're on board. Okay, we're going together. Here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. If you've got your Bibles there, or, if, or I'm going to put some of these verses up on the screen as well. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark says, um, this book I'm writing, it's about the beginning of something. What? Good news? About who? Jesus? What about him? He's the Messiah. More information, please. He is the very Son of God. Now, let's unpack those phrases just quickly, just a little bit. Good news. Now, we spoke about this a little bit last week. That word, it's euangelion in the original language. It's written in, which is New Testament Greek. What does it mean? It means very significant announcement. That's what that word means. So back in the day when an emperor was born or when they probably conquered a nation or something like that, you can imagine a herald coming to the town square, hear ye, hear ye. No, that was probably centuries later. But they would roll out the scroll and that was euangelion. That was the good news. It was a very significant announcement. And Mark is saying the same. I'm writing to you about a very significant announcement. It's life-changing, and I want us to get this this morning. It's something that has to be said, spoken. Like that's why our mission, you can see over there on the easel, is proclaiming the hope of Jesus to Mossman and beyond. Yes, we live out the implications of the gospel, absolutely, but it's a message that has to be told and heard. It's a famous quote here from St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Now, actually, I think this is a misquote. I don't know if he ever said this. And it sounds really cool and interesting, but it's actually just a little bit off, isn't it? You see, primarily, we, we absolutely must live out the implications of the gospel and live transformed lives as a community. But first and foremost, it's a message to be proclaimed. Okay, what kind of message? Let's have a look. This word, good news, euangelion, stay with me here. It meant very significant proclamation, okay, back then. But now it's taken on a whole other massive meaning. Now it means, really, good news, the gospel. It, it, now it represents the fact that it's a very significant message and it represents the message itself. 
Okay, so pretty much Mark is saying this is a very significant proclamation, and this is now represents the central truth of the Christian faith. When it's all boiled down to it, even in just this first little verse, this is answering our greatest questions, which is, is there any hope? Can we ever be close to the God we think might be there? Will there always be pain and suffering? Why do I feel this incredible longing for something I can't satisfy? All of these questions are addressed in this earth-shattering announcement. Now, who's the announcement about? No prizes for guessing correctly. Jesus. Some translations have Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. It is the same word in two different languages. It just means the anointed one or king. Pretty much it means Jesus the king. The Jews back then, the original people this is written to and, and who are in this, this story are waiting for a king, a Messiah, one who's going to come and rule God's people in a blessed way. Not only that, he is the son of God. Big call. Mark's not afraid to say, the reason I'm writing this book is so that you will, like me, believe that Jesus is the one who's, who was promised, who is the king, and he's the very son of God. That's the reason, that's his purpose for writing this book. Okay, that's Mark's purpose statement. Let's keep moving and flesh out this theme of, of warm up back and witness. Here we go, verse 2. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This is a quote taken from primarily the book of Isaiah, which is in the Old Testament. It was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And pretty much this is a prophecy. This is foretelling simply this. We could say so much about this, but it's simply saying this. One day, someone's going to come, and all they're going to do is be a witness and point to the Savior of the world. That's their role. Who is it? Let's keep reading. Verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to see how John is the great warm-up act for Jesus in a minute, but can we just for a second, have a look at, at this character. He's a real character. What are we told about him? We're told he's very popular. Did you notice in the reading, all of the city and all of the country people went out to see him. He wore a shirt made of what? Camel's hair. He ate wild honey and locusts. I think John the Baptist is the first hipster, don't you reckon? <laughs> Vegan, organically sourced, naturally sustained. I mean, he's wearing camel's hair. I don't know. John the Baptist a hipster before his time. I think of him like that a bit now, but I remember reading about John the Baptist when I was young. I just pictured him a bit like those guys you sometimes see in the city who, you know, the big beards, a bit unkept, maybe a bit homeless and smelly a bit, and they've got those sandwich boards, you know, and it's like, repent, the end of the earth is nigh, you know, that kind of thing. Like, that's how I pictured John the Baptist, like a real character. And I think he's a bit like that, but those people in the city, now, you know, people aren't flocking to go and see them. If you see them, you're kind of just you know, go walking across the road to avoid them. John the Baptist, people are flocking to see him. Now, did you notice people from the city and from the country went to go see him? So elites from the city, probably like a lot of us, and just folks from the country, farmers, they were all going to see him. Why? 
I was thinking about this this week. Why? I mean, news crews would have been out there. It would have been a, a huge thing. Why did people go out there to see him? They did it because they longed to hear from God. We know that it had been 400-year drought. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. And people were hungry to hear from God. And yet their hearts had also turned away from him. Now, I think there's something really significant for us I don't want to miss here, which is this. We are also hungry to hear from God. Every single one of us. I don't care if you're in church, if you're out, if you have faith, if you have no faith. Every single one of us is also hungry to hear from God. We just wouldn't articulate it like that, would we? All of us are hungry to hear from God. We'll go to many other places to fulfill that longing, but we've all got that longing. Why? Because we're told in God's word that God has set eternity in the hearts of his people. We are made in his image. And I think as Australians, I think of us as apathetic agnostics. You know, oh, maybe there's something out there, but eh, let's go to the beach. It's a bit like that, right? We, We try and sort of concrete over our spiritual lives, concrete over the fact that we have souls. But every now and then cracks appear and, and, and you know, bursts of water punch through and remind us that we are spiritual beings, that we, we were made with a purpose. They remind us of the, the important questions in our lives. They remind us of that longing. They remind us that we indeed have a soul. We were designed with that longing in us. It's not an accident. Okay, now remember what makes a good warm-up pact. What was the first one? Warm up the audience, you know, prepare them for a great night. What was the second one? Make us look good. Let's see how John the Baptist does those things. Let's look at the first one. How does he warm up? How does he prepare the people for Jesus? Well, John prepared the way for Jesus by, let's see in verse 4, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does that mean? Well, remember, it's a ministry of preparation. His job really is to come as he's the one, he's the one like that before Jesus and say, hey, get ready for this guy. And he does it saying this, soften your hearts towards God, toward the one that is coming. Make yourself ready for what Jesus is about to do. Now, the real life metaphor that's used in this actual circumstance is baptism. And that's something that Christians have appropriated and is a huge, hugely important part of what we do here. It's an incredible symbol, and it's this. When one is baptized, you go under the water, symbolizing death, symbolizing a death to your old life. You, go, you come up out of the water into new life. It's simple but profound. This is the metaphor, the real-life, tangible metaphor that John uses. And it's a perfect example of the word repentance, which really means just to turn around. See, repentance is not feeling sad or sorry or, or even just a decision, yeah, I think I might do that. Repentance is a decision to change and then followed with an action. And that's what baptism is, right? It's a decision to change and then going through that action. Okay, John says, turn your hearts toward God. Now, can I make a confession? We're amongst friends here. Okay, so maybe don't tweet this, but 
I'll make a confession, ready? It's a bit humbling. I am not a very good driver. I'm not, and Pip is nodding her head right now. She's always been the better driver in our relationship. I'm not the greatest driver. I mean, I can drive. Now, don't hold this against me. I don't want to pick you up and suddenly you're in the car and you're holding onto this thing like freaking out. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not a bad driver, but I'm not the world's best driver. I get distracted. I, get, I just like looking around at what's going on and I just, I, I do, I get distracted. I'm not the world's best driver. And moving to the USA, oh my goodness, it was tough. The steering wheel is on the other side of the car and you are on the other side of the road. It, it's freaky. I remember landing, first time I would have been there into Nashville, it was after midnight and we were so jet lagged. And I, I says a paper, you drive. Oh no, it's a disaster. And I had to get out of the airport and figure out where I was. It was hard. We got home safely, amazingly. But I remember one time driving the US on the interstate and we had to get off and I took, I I'm, I'm confused explaining what happened because it's obvious. I had no idea what was going on. I exited the ramp the wrong way and I, I, I tried to get back on the interstate and I took the wrong ramp and all I could see was signs like this, wrong way, go back. And there's cars coming towards us. It was really scary. It's absolutely scary. But please don't be afraid of jumping in the car with me now that I've admitted that, but, but it is true. This is John's role. He is saying, wrong way, go back. Turn your hearts towards God. Now, I've been thinking about it. No, it's okay. We'll leave it wrong. I've been thinking about this question this week. What does this mean for us? Right? What does it mean for us to turn our hearts towards God? Well, I think it means we've got to soften our hearts, just like the original hearers of this, just like the people he's describing. We've got to soften our hearts. We must turn our hearts away from counterfeit satisfaction. Counterfeit satisfaction, reorient our lives toward the one who gives life. Now, I believe we've also got to cultivate a sense of need for God in our lives. Can I say this? I reckon we are very self-sufficient people. If you're anything like me, we're very self-sufficient. We are can-do folks on the North Shore of Sydney in the Mossman, Cremor, Neutral Bay area. We are, and that's good. That's a good thing. But if we're not careful, we will just forget what it means to cultivate a dependence on God, a need for him, because that's the truth. That's the reality. We are, every single one of us, dependent on God. I've been thinking about that this week. So... We've looked at John's first role, warm up the crowd, prepare them for the headliner. Next one is make the headliner look good. How does he do it? Let's have a look. Verse 7. And this was his message. That's John the Baptist's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's humility is quite confronting here, isn't it? And he's so clear about the role he plays. My role? All it is? I'm a sign. I'm just a signpost to Jesus. Now, many of us would know this here, but he's speaking of that, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Back then, the lowliest of the low servant was the only one who had anything to do with people's feet back then. We probably know, you know people wore overturned sandals and their feet were gross. If you had any education, any sort of social standing, you, you would be 
wouldn't be caught dead doing anything like that. John is saying, me, compared to Jesus, I'm not worthy to touch his feet. The humility. Now, he's making Jesus look good, but he's doing it by speaking the truth. Because compared to him, the king of the universe, he was simply and humbly a signpost to Jesus. Is that making sense? I'm just, check it out. Here's a question. I've been thinking about this this week. Is my life a signpost to Jesus? That's a challenging thought, isn't it? Do my words, my actions, the way I live, do I point to Jesus? That's not about living a perfect life. Jesus is the only one that could do that, that did do that. It's not about living a perfect life. But it is about living what we talk about here a lot at Harvestside, authentic lives. We don't want to be fake, shiny, happy people, right? There's a lot of people like that around here. And I, for one, I'm sick of it. Sick of the fakeness. Sick of the striving. We want to live authentic lives following Jesus together. That's what we want to do. We don't want to compartmentalize our lives either. This is my spiritual life and over here is the rest of my life. We want to integrate our lives. We want to be honest about the struggles we we are having because Christians, let me tell you, we have struggles too. If you become a Christian, it's not that you enter into this, now I will never struggle. Absolutely not. Do we understand more about our struggles? Absolutely. We want to live authentic lives. We are integrating our spiritual lives and the rest of our lives. Here's a question as well. Who is a signpost in your life? If you were a Christian, can you think of anyone in your life who pointed you to Jesus? Maybe it was a, a youth leader or a parent or an older brother or a younger sister or whatever it was. Who in your life pointed you to Jesus? Who now in your life is pointing you to Jesus? I reckon that's a role we can all play. It was cool hearing from Ali and Mandy about the Alpha course. That's the great thing about this course is it's, all of us can play that role. Just invite, hey, you got questions? I may know not, don't know all the answers to them, but hey, come along to this course. What are you being there? You're just being a signpost. Come along and check out Jesus, the one we worship. Okay, John says he baptizes with water, which is great. I mean, it's, it's not holy water. It's just, what does water do? It washes away dirt. But guess what? The one who's coming, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to transform you from the inside out. You think John the Baptist was called and you think his humility was something to witness? Check out Jesus, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Galilee is the larger area. Nazareth is the town. And let me tell you, these are very insignificant places. This is nowhere. But this is totally on par with how God works in the world. Jesus is thoroughly unimpressive at this point, right? He's from a thoroughly unimpressive place. God's not interested in show. He's not interested in a great show of things. He's often not interested in things that we are interested in. But if you want authentic, you've come to the right place in Jesus. Now, I've been floored by this this week. Jesus approaches John in the Jordan River to be baptized. Have you ever thought, why? Why does Jesus, the King of the universe, the sinless Savior, why does he get baptized? Why does he need to? 
He does it to further identify himself with our need for forgiveness. Did you get, did you get that? Let me say it again. Jesus gets baptised to further identify with us, to further identify with our need for forgive, with our greatest need. Not only does the king of the universe give up the treasures of heaven, become a man, the God-man, get born into a peasant family, born to a mother out of wedlock, born in a stable in a very unimpressive place, works manual labour for years, and he now chooses as his first act of public ministry to further identify himself with you and I. It's phenomenal. It's crazy. Pip and I saw this picture um, when we went to France about 10 years ago. It's in the Louvre. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It doesn't matter. Uh, the Louvre Gallery in Paris. It's uh, called the Coronation of Napoleon for obvious reasons because it depicts Napoleon and Josephine being coronated. Yeah, that's the word, coronated. Now, it's a piece of propaganda um, it was commissioned by Napoleon himself, and it wasn't paid until six months or a year after the fact. But it does depict an actual event and an astonishing moment. In 1804, May, May 18th, 1804, Napoleon of France proclaimed himself emperor and his wife, Josephine, empress. Okay? He put on this ceremony, the coronation ceremony, it took place later that year, at the cost of, get this, 8.5 million francs, I don't know what the calculation is, but it, I think it's about the price of a townhouse in Neutral Bay. Um, <clears throat> I'm kidding. It was an absolutely enormous amount of money. It almost beggared the treasury. It was so much money. He invited everybody, bishops, archbishops. He paid for the Pope and his crew, his posse, to come from Vatic the Vatican to witness the service. You can see him there. I'll, um, I'll make the image bigger in a moment. But it was crazy. Now, here's what, here's what I want us to get. This is just astounding. It's sacred to tradition for kings and queens to be crowned by the church, to be crowned by the pope or the bishop. He invited the pope to be there. And get, get this. Here's Napoleon. This is what he does. The bishop gets the crown. He takes it from the bishop, and he crowns himself. First time in history. I mean, the message couldn't be clearer. Who's in charge? It's me. And this picture is depicting him crowning, which never been done before, crowning Josephine, his wife. This is a, a huge statement. And this is a piece of propaganda. You can see the Pope there. He's, um, I've got my little thing there. Oh, there you go. That's him there. Actually, during the service, he was doing this. He was pretty cranky about it. But Napoleon had him sort of anointing, blessing the ceremony. Think about this. No expense spared. Napoleon taking the crown. I'm in charge. Think of the king of the universe. Does he make a fuss? Does he make sure everyone knows who he is? Does he say, John, do you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? How many celebrities have we heard celebrity stories like that, getting kicked out or getting pulled over by cops? Don't you know who I am? Does Jesus, the king of the universe, do that? His first public act is to further and humbly identify with our need for forgiveness. How amazing is Jesus? We should never lose the wonder of the humility of Christ. 
And let's not for a, for a second just go, oh, that's nice. Jesus is humble. You might be thinking, so what? So what? He did it all for you. He gave up the treasures of heaven. He was baptized to further identify with our need for forgiveness and repentance for you and I. Let's not detach those realities. All right, let's keep moving. We'll end with this. Verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You can check out what happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Instead of some pompous ceremony, what we have is an incredibly authentic display of the triune God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not only does this prove who Jesus is, the Son of God, we actually get a glimpse. Don't miss this. If you've fallen asleep, wake up now. <laughs> we get a glimpse into the relationship, the community of God. Now, let me ask you this. What has Jesus done so far to get to this point? It's Mark 1, verse 10. What's he done? Not a lot. Very little. Before Jesus has performed any miracles, before he's healed anybody, before he's booted out any demons, before he's taken on the authority of the religious leaders, before any of his teachings been put forward, before he's died on the cross, before he's risen again from the dead, before any of that happens, what do we have? God the Father, say these words. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. What does he say? I love you. I'm proud of you. Before he does anything, just let that sink in. Now, I've, you know, like I said, I've got you know, three kids. It's usually band illustrations and kid illustrations, okay? And maybe some things from history, but we'll see. Imagine my son, seven years old, coming home from school saying, Dad, I've, I've finally made the best soccer team. And I finally came first in my class in art. I did it, Dad. Now you can love me. Now what would I say? If I was a good father, what would I say? Son, awesome, I'm so glad you did those things. But don't for a second think that any of those reasons have anything to do with the fact that I love you. I love you because you are my son. I said before, that we're hungry to hear from God. I believe that. Boy, are we hungry for a love like this. Aren't we just desperate for love and acceptance that is not based on performance? A love that frees us from the suffocating need to achieve our way into people's hearts, succeed our way into the right social group, into the right work position, into you name it, you fill in the blank having to perform for love. This is true for me. I reckon it's true for so many of us. You know, I, I, you know, my dad left my family when I was seven years old and I saw him a little bit growing up, but I longed for affirmation from him and all I got was silence. And I tried to find that love and affirmation in so many other places. But here is the good news. You see, you and I, we are invited into the perfect love relationship of God himself. That's the truth. That's the good news that Jesus brings. Because before we were created, 
for all eternity past, God has been in community with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three in one. He's not just one. If he were one, then he would have to make us in order to experience love, wouldn't he? Therefore, he would have been deficient. God is not deficient. He is perfect. He has been experiencing the perfect love relationship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past and through into eternity future. Why did he create us? Not because he longed to love someone, because he wanted to invite us into that story. That is the good news of the Christian faith. And it is unique to the Christian faith. This is the good news. We share in this because of Jesus. We are invited into this perfect love relationship. To be fully known and fully loved. Goodness me, don't we completely desire that? We'll never receive it anywhere else but Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up now. And we're going to finish up in a moment. Today we've um, received a few words, haven't we? Received some challenges and some encouragements. I have this week. Been beaten up by this text this week. And the first one for us is, may we cultivate a spirit of repentance. Right? Cultivate a need for God in our lives. Practice a humility that invites God in. How can we be a signpost to God? How can we prepare the way for others? And this is my prayer for us here at Harborside Church, is that may we know deeply the love and acceptance offered to us in Christ. And our prayer at Harborside is to personify, is to demonstrate that love together. We're not a perfect community. won't take you very long to figure that out. But we are a community that is trying to model this love and at the same time trying to point people to the author of this love. That is our prayer, that is our hope, our dream for this church to be that. Why don't I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We are committed to opening up your word and hearing you speak. And may we listen. Lord, there are many here today that are longing for that love and acceptance, unconditional, that says, you are my child. I'm proud of you. I love you. You do not have to perform for my love. You do not have to achieve for my love because all of it has already been done in Christ. And so we rest in that today. Teach us how to rest. Lord, we, we get the sense that you are doing something special in this life of our church. And so may we have ears to hear. May you move us by your spirit into new things. Break down any barriers in our hearts that we have set up. Soften our hearts, Lord. Prepare us for what is to come. Thank you for this journey of discovering Jesus together. Be with us as we sing your praises because you're worthy of our praise. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.